Well, good morning again. Welcome to everybody here with us this morning and those who are with us online. It's a joy to be together and to have a God that is worth the songs and, and worth setting our thoughts and affections on. Uh, and a privilege to be able to do this together. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you. We're so glad that you have chosen to be with us today. And uh, we want to better connect with you. So if you wouldn't mind, if you hadn't received one of these yet, grab one of these on the way out, scan the little QR code and help us connect with you. Uh, that would be great. Again, it's a joy to be together uh, this morning. Uh, we had a, a great time kicking off our uh, adult class in the, in the book of Hebrews and uh, encouraged those who might be inclined to join us in that from 9 to 10, 15 on Sunday mornings. Uh, it's a Certainly an encouraging time. And we get to now turn our attention, our focus, back to Revelation. We started that series in the fall, then we stopped at Advent, and now we're, we had our global outreach focus last week, which was greatly encouraging to hear from Jeff Ouellette at Pepperell Christian Fellowship as he's getting ready to put the team together to launch out a church plant from a daughter church of Trinity. So it's a grandson church plant, if you will, and uh, very exciting and we're glad to have spent that time with him. But now we're returning back to Revelation. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2, where it should be on the screen, and uh, we'll, we'll follow along. But we, were, we left off in the middle of seven letters that Jesus gave in chapters 2 and 3. And so we're returning back to that. And the nice thing is, as we're returning back to it, it, it carries or it covers some similar themes of where we left off. So it's a good way to get right back into where we were. Uh, some of the themes will be similar to where we ended. I expect everybody to have remembered every sermon I've ever preached, but especially the last one in Revelation. Um, no, I don't expect that at all, um, but hopefully we'll be encouraged as we come back to it. So let's read. It's a lengthier, it's a longer portion uh, than what we've been considering, but we're going to start at verse 18 and go through verse 29. <clears throat> And to the angel of the church in Thuatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches heart, mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thuatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God, we come to a very striking passage, unique things, confusing, scary, odd. And we pray that you would do a good work as we consider it. Help us now as we attend to it, be with the preaching and the hearing and the receiving of your word to our good and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A compromised faith reveals a compromised heart, and a compromised heart leads to compromised living. Or another way to stress it is what we believe reveals what we treasure, and what we treasure informs how we live. What we believe reveals what we treasure, and what we treasure informs how we live. When the object of our faith shifts away ever so slightly or in big ways from the truth of who God is and what God does, or when the object of our faith gets shaped by the cultural values around us, then things will quickly spiral out of control in our hearts and show up in how we live. The letter to Thuatira, I know it doesn't look like that, uh, but it, it's, a, it's an oo sound, Thuatira, and I had a professor in seminary say, whoever has a microphone pronouncing the crazy words, whatever he says or she says, that's the correct pronunciation. So that, we'll just go with that. Anyway, Thuatira, it serves as a warning to this slippery slope, and it serves as an encouragement to the overall call of the letter of Revelation to basically hold on to Jesus. Hold on to him. I mean, that's if you remember, we, we gave out a, a sort of interpretive key to remember what we're doing as we're going through this strange letter in the Bible. The interpretive key is life is hard. Evil is real. God is in control. Jesus wins, so hold on. It, uh, it, it, it's honest and real about the reality around us that life is indeed hard and that there is evil and it's strange and it's odd and our passage, it's weird. I, I get it. We read it and we're like, this seems so foreign to us. I don't, I don't know what in the world is happening here. And, 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 but something evil is happening. Jesus' words are, are bold and strong and, and, and scary and it's odd. Life is hard and evil is real, but God is in control. We need to rehearse that to our hearts. And Jesus wins over all the weird and over all the odd and over all the evil. Jesus wins. And because these things are true, the call to us is to hold on. Hold on. As we consider our passage, we need to remember that there is a difficult cultural context going around the church. There's difficult opposition within it. We see that there's a call to repent and to hold on. And we are encouraged by the promise that there is a, a king, King Jesus, who overcomes all, and therefore we who follow him, who hold on, also overcome. <clears throat> this breakdown is very similar to the letter that we considered back in November to Pergamum, the one that's right before through Atira. And it's a good sort of return back into Revelation, a, a review in return 
uh, to where we are. And it's reminding us again of the overriding call and encouragement to hold on. We will be better equipped to hold on when we better understand two things going on in our passage here. One, our present reality is one that is filled with nothing but pressure. I don't have to convince anybody of this. We all feel pressure. We feel pressure because life is hard. Everybody feels the pressure of life is hard, whether they acknowledge there's a God or not, or if they say there are a million gods. It doesn't matter. We all, as a human being, feel the pressure of a broken world where, where life is indeed hard, and there is evil that runs rampant around. We feel the pressure of that. The people of God feel even more pressure because there's opposition to who God is, there's opposition to the gospel of God. There's opposition to the people of God. And so there's all kinds of pressure. And so we feel pressure. So for us to be better equipped to hold on is that we just get honest with the reality. Our present reality is one of pressure. Don't sort of mask it or pretend it. it's not there. Ignore it. Like the rattling in your car that you hear when you're driving down the road, you can't ignore it into correction. <laughs> You can't fix it by avoiding it or ignoring it. So let's not ignore the reality. Our present reality is filled with pressure. The other thing we learn from our passage that better equips us to hold on is our future glory. Ones who overcome. It's an overcoming glory. Because the one we belong to overcame it all for us and is with us, and will see us all the way to the very end in the midst of all of that pressure. So, present reality, future glory. Our passage helps us see these things. Now, there are some specific things in our passage that are confusing and hard to understand, don't necessarily seem to relate to us exactly right now or a one-to-one fashion, but overall, the whole point is, yes, there is going to be all kinds of pressure, but hold on, because Jesus overcomes it, and so will his people. So let's tackle that together. Our present reality is one of pressure. Let me go back over verses 18 through 23. Let's consider those words again, just to get a sense of this pressure. And to the angel of the church in Thuatara, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love, and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. That's, I mean, that's just intense. There's just no way around it. Whether we fully understand everything that's going on there, we can fully understand that it's an intense thing that's going on. It's an intense amount of pressure. And there's pressure is coming from two places. First, it's a, it's a pressure around. It's the cultural pressure around the church. The church exists in a context in which it is very, very, very difficult to be the church, to be a Christian. 
So there is pressure around. And then secondly, we're going to find that that pressure is also enhanced and furthered because it's also a pressure from within. That there's, there's some, some bad and false teaching that is leading many people away from holding on to Jesus. So there's this pressure on the outside pushing down and there's pressure on the inside pushing out. And you can just feel the intensity and the heaviness and the burden of all of this, these pressure points coming onto the church. So much so that you'd almost rather just stay home in your PJs than to live out your life following Christ in the face of all kinds of pressure like this. I'm glad the Bible is real and raw about that. It means we're not crazy when we feel that pressure. It means that's been going on, and it means God has an avenue for us to have endurance in the face of such pressure. He's not oblivious to this. He is fully aware, more so than we are. Take courage in that. Find comfort there. So let's tackle some of this together. First, let's consider the pressure that's going on from around. The church was in a place that had a way of life that gloried in the things that fell outside of God's design for them, whatever those things might be. And so it's really applicable to any time in history, any stage or culture that, that wants to invest itself and identify itself and glory itself in the things that are counter to the way that God has set forth creation and humanity in the way that we are to live. So the cultural pressure around the church in Thuatira is one uh, uh, that is making much of, of life that's outside of God's design. Thuatira was a commercial hub of the region. It was an important place that, that sort of was a, a, a passageway, but then also a centering point. So it was like really a big hub of commerce and of trade and of skill. And because of that, it had a high number of, of what are called guilds or coalitions of, of people of a specific trade or skill or commerce. And those guilds in the Roman world, in the, Romans de, in the Roman system, each guild would have its own deity or sets of deities that they would sort of do sort of religious, pagan religious things to appease the deity so that business would be good. And so you had to go through sort of the, the law and routine of that deity. And the point of that was to have social acceptance among each other in the guild and that your business would be able to go about doing its work, whatever it was a trade or a skill or some other form of commerce. There, there were deities everywhere. And so, so what came with that were all kinds of socio-religious cult-like functions to appease that deity so that business would be good. Most of these required some sort of homage, and they had all kinds of festivals that incorporated into it over their calendar year, and they followed a very, very, very different sexual ethic than what God had designed. And if you didn't do the, play the part of the guild in its process, then you were going to experience or endure economic hardship or actual ruin. Like there would be no chance for you. That's the culture around 
And so now you are living in that culture. You've been rescued because somebody shared with you the gospel. You heard it proclaimed, and and you put your faith and your trust in Christ, and you're learning what it looks like to live and follow after King Jesus. And now, all of a sudden, everything that you've known and grew up in and accepted has become a weight you cannot carry and a pressure that will crush you. How difficult this would have been. And how the call and the pull to live in a way that is counter to what God has set forth and designed and said is good is placed on the shoulders of these Christians. And we noticed here the one thing that's slightly different than what we see in Pergamum is a, a very specific calling out of sexual sin. Now, the Bible often uses sexual sin, specifically even adultery, to convey a spiritual reality of us bailing on God. It's helpful. You feel the, 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 the depth of that when you realize that, that abandoning God is like adultery. You feel the, the brokenness over that. And that certainly is true, what's going on here, but there's also actual sexual sin. Sexual sin isn't just a metaphor and picture of spiritual adultery. It actually, when we read our Bible, oftentimes accompanies it. That's interesting to me. That's fascinating to find the that when we turn away from God, we start living in ways that don't follow his design. Sexual ethics in the Greco-Roman world was mixed with pagan practices that, that pushed out the, the, the boundaries even further and further and further. And sadly, it exploited class and power dynamics, meaning if you had power and you were up the, the chain within the class structure of the Roman culture, you essentially got a green light to do whatever you wanted. Sexual ethics in the Greco-Roman world in which the church is birthed was terrible. Terrible for anyone who was not in the right part of that society. Anyone marginalized was already in a place of exploitation. That meant minorities, that meant the poor, and that meant women. This is an awful, evil context of terrible abuse. And it was celebrated in these guilds and with these festivals. And there was a whole system that if you didn't follow, you were signing up for economic ruin. When our worldview has nothing to do with God who created all things, then hurtful things will be done to each other. Hurtful things. 
This is the pressure around this church. People were getting saved and rescued out of that. And that is glorious and awesome. But then navigating that culture is almost impossible. So now add to that pressure from within. Pressure from within to only make it worse, to only make it more challenging. False teachers show up with compromising doctrine that leads to compromised living. They show up saying, no, you don't have to worry about these things. God's not really like that. Therefore, you can live like this. You're good. I mean, that's essentially what's being said Whatever the specific detail of this false teaching is, we don't know. The Bible doesn't totally pull that all back, but it does give us a sense of of it being something that is compromised in its truth, and it will shape our hearts and show up in our lives. I mean, think about these false teachers coming into this, this small church family, or maybe family of churches in this town. I mean, they're beleaguered, they're weary, they're trying to navigate a very complicated world for them without being destitute. They're trying to make decisions to care for their families, and how are they going to hold on in the face of such enormous pressure from around? And then all these false teachers come in seeking to capitalize on hearts that are torn and weary and wondering, wondering what and how. And so King Jesus calls this group, um, person, maybe even that spearheading this false teaching, Jezebel. And Jezebel is a reference to the Old Testament story that you can find in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 19. She seduced a king, King Ahab, and, 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 and in that sort of union sought to crush all of God's prophets and to lead God's people away from following him. Her name is a symbol of the seductive power of idolatry and the immorality that soon follows. But whatever the content of the false teaching, it is clear that it leads to a completely compromised life that reflected the culture around rather than the values of the king, King Jesus. And so this church, weak and wobbly, feeling overwhelmed by big culture around them, Many would rather, rather than suffer for following Christ, embraced the false teachings in this alternative way that you could have Christ in one hand but live for the world in the other. And I think this passage tells us you can't play that game. You can't have Christ in one hand and the world in the other and feel like you can navigate that. You can somehow feel in control of it. All that will do is bring conflict to your soul. To where you get to a crisis, I have to let go of one of them. Revelation, in this particular letter that we're looking at, is saying, don't let go of Christ. Don't let go. Hold on. King Jesus here has some strong words for the church who is accommodating the false teaching. He doesn't really say much about the culture around. has strong words about the false teachers and strong words about the church that has allowed room for them to come in. He doesn't really say much other than we know he will deal with the culture and 
all opposition to him and his glory fully and finally and forever when he returns. But his focus here is, is really to turn to the, the church and the false teachers within. And the other things that's striking here is that Jesus is saying, I have graciously given time for them to repent, but justice will come. And he turns then the heat of his warning to the church who is allowing this all to happen. It's important for us, even right now in our day and age, where we feel a lot of cultural pressure and how is the church going to be the church in the face of cultural pressure. When I look at this passage, I don't see so much an us versus them set up between the church and the world. I just keep finding stronger words from Jesus about the house keeping itself in order. So much of our general evangelicalism around us makes, it a, makes the story about Christianity versus the world or the culture while accommodating very quietly all kinds of idolatry. Idolatry that looks at January 6, 2021 and doesn't think that's a big deal. Or idolatry that looks at the sexual ethics of a secular world and says, yeah, I agree with that too. Both pulls pull away from holding on to what God has revealed about himself, about his purposes, about his ways. And instead of making it about us versus them, perhaps we should follow suit and care deeply about holding on. And the first step to holding on that we see given by King Jesus the main way to respond to the pressure around and the pressure within is to repent. Look again at verses 20 through 23. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food, sacrifice to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. First of all, it is yet another moment in our series in Revelation in which we come to this word repent, in which the main thrust of Jesus' exhortation to one of these churches and these letters is the first and foremost to repent. And I'm going to do this every time we come across it, is to refresh us. What is it that we see in repentance? What are we doing? What three movements are taking shape in repentance? And the first is that repentance consists of turning from. It is a turning from. It is a recognizing sin for what it is, a rejection of God in some fashion, a rejection of who God is, a rejection of what God says, a rejection of what God does. It's a rejection of God. And and to repent is to turn away from following or embracing or holding on to or knowing that you're doing something that is in rejection of God. So turn away from it. Turn away from it, recognize it for what it is, and turn away from it. And guess what? Jesus, King Jesus, has all the time in the world and all the grace that that you can even imagine to give you to repent, which is great and amazing, but don't delay. 
Don't delay. Don't wait. Don't test the time. Don't test the amount of grace, if you will. We do see that at some point, Jesus is going to say, nope, all right, well, I gave time to, to repent. My purposes are going to come to bear now. So hear this and take this seriously. The call to repentance is a serious one. A serious one. Turn from that which is rejection of God. But don't just turn into a void, into an emptiness, into a whatever, because you'll just find something else to hold on to. That's a different kind of rejection of God. So repentance is, is yes, recognizing and turning from, but it is also a turning to. It's as you're turning from, you're turning to the God who has forgiveness and grace for sinners such as us who keep running headlong into the wall. He has forgiveness and grace for us. That's staggering. That's staggering. As parents, many of us in this room are parents, and it's hard to have forgiveness and grace for your kids over the same thing again and again and again and again. You wear out. Your kids, if you're here, you could probably say amen. Yes, my dad and mom wear out. And here's a logbook of all the times in which they have. It's hard. It's challenging. And God does not wear out of forgiveness and grace. So turn from and turn to the God of all grace and mercy who has it in full measure in our time of need. And the third movement of repentance isn't just turning from and turning to, but then it's living new. That a changed direction leads to a change of living. A changed direction leads to a change in living. That we start following the king and we start in adopting and embracing and living out his values for our life rather than our interpretation of what those values should be. King Jesus cares about heart change. And he knows the heart better than you and I. Now, we can certainly go about pointing out wrong living. And we can certainly go about expending a lot of injury. Injury, <laughs> that's a accidental, but also appropriate, energy and injury to others, pointing out bad doctrine. But unless there is heart change around what we treasure, we will only experience spiritual and emotional conflict. Unless our heart changes around what we treasure, repentance will be in word, but not in heart. The heart will defend what it treasures its defense mechanisms will be alerted to something that says that treasure needs to go. Our heart will feel it. And we need to take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows that. He knows it. And he's greater than even our defenses. Verse 23 says, And the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. He knows you better than you, and he has grace and mercy for you. You, all, you know where all the dark corridors are. He knows how to shine light in there. He knows you better than you, and there's grace and mercy. Also, you can't juke Jesus. You may Jesus juke your friends and your family, but you can't Jesus juke Jesus. He's got greater agility than you. His three-cone drill is far superior than what you would ever be able to do. You can't juke Jesus. 
And yet, there he is getting in your way to give you grace and mercy. Turn from this. Turn to me. Follow. First step in dealing with these pressures is to know that their first step is one of repentance. One of repentance. And the other is to understand better our future glory. Our present reality is one of pressure, but our future glory is one of an overcoming reality. Verses 24 through 29 say, But to the rest of you in Thuatara, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, just stop for a second. If you're embracing something that King Jesus is describing as the deep things of Satan, maybe, maybe you're running with the wrong group. <laughs> let's, let's, let's maybe... Ooh, that's not a great descriptor. All right, sorry. To say to you, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with them with a rod of iron, as whenever earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Wow. Wow. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Future glory, when we look at it and we see the overcoming reality that comes our way for those of us who are holding on to Christ, gives us present strength to continue holding on. And in three ways, we find that it is, first of all, there are no new burdens. When you are holding on to Jesus, there are no new burdens. Secondly, it is that we get to then have all the strength needed to hold fast When you're holding on to Christ, you're given everything you need to hold fast, hold to Him. And then thirdly, we find we will be ones who overcome. That we will be ones who overcome all the pressure around, all the pressure within. So hold on. I know it is wearying. I know it is overwhelming, so hold on. So first of all, no new burdens. Jesus says in verse 24, I do not lay on you any other burden. Amen to that. I mean, if you feel like you are under burdens and it's just more burdens piling on burdens, and Jesus is saying to you, I'm not laying on you any other burden. Take comfort in that. The pressure around you and the pressure within bring with them burdens that drag us down. All these pressures, they come with their own set of laws that we must live by. And those laws will burden our souls and our lives. And Jesus is saying that I'm not giving you that. I'm not buckling you down with that. I'm not weighing you down with that because King Jesus came to take all of our burdens. He came and took all of the burden of the law, something we could not carry and keep. And he gave to us all the righteous standing that comes with one who kept the law perfectly. He's not in the business of giving us burdens that buckle our knees. He's taking them. So if there's something that grips your heart and it's producing a burden on you that is dragging you down, No, that's not Jesus. He takes those burdens. He lifts those burdens. He says, like in Matthew chapter 11, words that we probably should rehearse to our hearts again and again. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. False teaching, bad doctrine, is a burden that you cannot drag around. It carries with it a law you cannot keep. The pressures of the cultural values around us demand your obedience. You cannot keep. Jesus, I came to live the life that you failed and couldn't do. I lived it perfectly. And I, play, I lay down that life in your place, taking on a penalty you couldn't bear to give to you a righteousness you could not earn in order to bring you to a place you could not go. <laughs> no. Keep the things that are true about who God has revealed himself to be near in your head and in your heart because there's so much pressure around you to feel and think otherwise. No new burdens, y'all. No new burdens. Instead, everything we need to hold fast. Verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. Did you catch that? Hold fast isn't a work in the sense that you have to you have to do, 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 do. Hold fast what you have already. What God has already given you in Christ. Hold on. You already have it. Christ is yours. You who look to him through faith, he's yours. You have it. Hold on. Hold on. And King Jesus unfolds what he wants us, his people to do. Hold on to him until the end. How do we hold on then, you say? Well, You hold on by knowing him through faith. You know him truly through the word. You know him truly through the word. He reveals, he is revealed through the word. Know him through the word. Hold on through knowing him, through faith. Hold on with hearts for him. Treasure him. Treasure him as the most significant, as the ultimate hope of our faith. Treasure him as the one who rescues you from sin and brings you to the family of God. Treasure him, hearts for him. How do we hold fast? Well, we then live out. We know him, we, we have hearts for him, and we live out his values by his power, that is, his spirit at work within. It's, it's worship we hold on to. It's, it's, it's trust and faith that we hold on to him through. It's following the way that he would have us live, even as it brings maybe sometimes more pressure from around. But we endure the pressure and its burden when we enjoy our king, our burden-taking king. We have it. He says so right here. We have it. So hold on. And then lastly, we find that, that, our, that our future glory gives us present strength with the fact that we know that there are no new burdens, and that we can hold fast, as ones who already have overcome. Verse 26, The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Staggering. The ultimate end for those who hold on is that we reign with the king in glory. We're part of his kingdom and he says, come reign with me. Conquer, this is another way of saying as ones who overcome. It's the whole life of faith. To know Jesus who overcomes the burdens of the world and and of our sin and of death and of Satan. 
All those who belong to him share in what Jesus has already overcome. You get to share in what Jesus has already overcome. He's already overcome death. He's already overcome Satan. He's already overcome your sin. You get to share in that reality. The world demands a heavy toll. False teaching demands a heavy toll. But look at what the king of everything gives. He gives you glory. It says there in verse 28, I will give him the morning star. And you're like, what is that? Well, the morning star refers to the full, final, and forever reign of the returning king. It's a messianic promise that you can find in Psalm 2 in Numbers 24. And Jesus, King Jesus is saying, I'm going to share that with you. So the pressures around you in the culture in which we live, they're going to demand everything from you and demand a heavy toll on you. False teaching that wants to drift you away from trusting and holding on to King Jesus is going to demand on you a heavy toll. It's going to demand everything from you. King Jesus, the one who's over the whole cosmos, the heavens and the earth and everything in between, the one who, who, can, who spoke into existence all things out of nothing, King Jesus, it isn't demanding on you a heavy toll. He's saying, come on up here next to me in this throne and rule with me. So when you feel the pressures, rehearse to your heart the truth of your king who he is, what he does, and what he has for you. Believe him. Treasure him. Follow him. Because what we believe reveals what we treasure. What we treasure informs how we live. So let's go about treasuring this king. Our, our pressure our present reality is filled with the pressure to compromise on that. But our future glory gives us strength to hold on. So let us together treasure Christ until he comes again. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that even in odd and strange passages that we can find pictures and you revealing your character and your worth. And I pray First and foremost, that our hearts would be encouraged, even with a tricky and confusing passage like this, that our hearts would indeed be encouraged. That while our life is hard and evil is real, you are in control. It's confusing to us, but we trust you. And we know that Jesus wins, and we long for the day in which we know that in full measure. And because of these things, God, would you give us strength of faith to hold on until our faith moves to sight. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Titus 3, we read, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, 